Good morning, Hillcrest. It's great to see you. Welcome to the 11 o'clock service. If you've been popping in here and there and you're like, man, I feel like I'm getting a lot more of the services lately, it is because we've moved to two services, right? We meet at 9 and we meet at 11, uh, and it's been great. So this is my first time preaching a double header, okay? Um, and we're all learning lessons. I will drink less water in the first service after this experience. Anyways, uh, a huge thank you to the Lapkas who were joining us. And uh, of course, there are partner missionaries uh, as they serve in Central America. I had the honor um, a couple of years ago with Doug and Steve to head down uh, to Honduras. And we got to spend a little bit of time with the Lapkas. Um, they're doing a great work there. One of the things I love about it, about them as a family, is that um, they're a family on mission together. And uh, it's not just Ron, but the kids are in it, and Sherry is in it, and they're loving and serving Jesus and doing all that they can to be um, a part of his work at Central America, and they're doing a great job. So we're very blessed to have them this morning with us and uh, have read that scripture. Um, some of you, um, maybe you're just joining our stream, uh, we're walking through a series in First and Second Peter, and it's called The Peter Perspective. Uh, and today, uh, of course, the Lapkas read our portion of Scripture that we're really going to just be walking through uh, this morning, um, seeing things from Peter's perspective, but I, I guarantee he's quoting some Old Testament Scripture that's informing his perspective. He's consulting the, the teachings and experiences that he has from Jesus uh, are all feeding in today's message, and so uh, we're going to get there. Um, the way I've kind of broken it up is we're going to just look at three different chunks of Scripture today um, in this passage. Now, they all flow together, but they're, it's helpful to kind of look at them in smaller increments. Now, in doing some research and looking into this this week, I realized this is easily three separate messages. So, with that, I say buckle up, because we're, we're going to get through them all today. It's going to be great. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to sharing with you. Um, one of the things, anytime uh, we're looking at the first Peter, uh, we have to keep something in mind. We have to keep in mind who it is that Peter is actually talking to. And Peter is talking to first century Christians, people whose lives have been changed and transformed because of the gospel, because of Jesus' work. Um, if I had to summarize uh, today's message in a phrase, it would be living above suffering. That's, what, that's on Peter's agenda this morning in this text, is to help coach Christians who are suffering for Jesus how to live above that kind of suffering. And I think it's important that as we look at Scripture um, and we talk about suffering, that we understand what kind of suffering he's talking about. You see, it's easy to think about suffering as just as, well, I suffer whenever my home renovation projects don't go according to plan, right? Um, my wife uh, was gifted from her brother this really great, um, what's it called, a little free library, you know, those cute little, looks like oversized birdhouses that you put books in and people swap and share. Anyway, so it was my job simply to mount this out. And so we had some concrete uh, already at home and I was just supposed to anchor this steel thing into their simple task while it was brutal. Nothing went my way. I made several trips back to the to Rona. Kyle McLean can verify. He bumped into me in the Rona aisle, and I was not happy, Pastor Chris. I was like discouraged, frustrated. Things were not going my way. And there's a tendency to, to interpret suffering as that, that when things just don't go your way and you're having a bad time. But to keep uh, the right perspective as we work through this passage of Scripture— we need to understand that 
These are Christians who are being persecuted and are suffering for their faith. And there's some encouragement to that for us as Christians. This notion that our faith in Jesus is meant to impact the culture around us. But as we're living lives that God is calling us to live, there is friction, there is suffering, there's hard times that are sure to come about as a result of that. And so it's to this audience that Peter is speaking, wanting to bring about a word of encouragement to them. And so in many ways, the text that we're looking at this morning is all about how do I rise above suffering? And Peter's going to jump into that. So here we go. Let's jump in. So our first part here, we're going to kick it off in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And the very first word, finally, that shines out, he says, all of you. Now, this ties in with Pastor Steve's amazing messages from last week. Um, In that passage of scripture, Peter's writing and he refers to dear friends and he gives some instruction. He says slaves and he gives some instruction. He says wives and he gives some advice and instruction and husbands and some instruction. And, And here he's summing it all up and he's saying, finally, all of you. So in the word that he had given to specifically to each of those categories last week, in today's message, he's saying all of you together. And this is his advice. He says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. And as I look at this sort of five uh, items or ways of relating or behaviors, I can't help but think that these must be like essential ingredients to Peter. It's like, this is the stuff above all and with all the other instruction, this is what I don't want you to forget about these five things. Our essential essential ingredients. And so these are important not just for God's family to, to give expression to one another as the family of God, but also to this world, this culture that we live in, that they would see these things as well. And so it's worth taking a look at them. So this idea of being like-minded, the word there isn't so much about being um, exactly the same or carbon copies. The word there is actually sort of this notion of harmony. So be like-minded, be harmonious. And so um, as our worship band was up playing, uh, part of music is this idea of a chord, right? It's three different keys on a piano, but when they're all played together, it sounds good. It harmonizes. It's pleasing to the ear, even though they're different notes. And so in a lot of ways, Peter is saying, I want you to have that, that same like-mindedness, that harmony that rings out. And that takes work. That takes some adjustment, doesn't it? Um, Uh, It takes the hard work of communication, right? We're not mind readers, right? I'm constantly telling Jenna, honey, I'm not a mind reader. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. You have to verbally communicate it for me to get it. And so then there's that negotiation where she's like, well, I kind of expected I thought you'd do this. And I go, well, honey, I think your expectations were a little unreasonable. Come on, keep it. And so you work through that, but you come to the point where hopefully on the other side of it, you've struck a chord. There's Harmony there where you're working through things together. The next thing is, is Peter talks about sympathy. This idea of uh, being open to see things from somebody else's perspective, but being responsive to the needs of other people. Acting out in sympathy. When they've got needs, you respond. 
And then love. He says, love one another. This is the chief motivation. Keep in mind, he's not talking about the the good feelings towards other people because, right, feelings are short-lived often. But he's talking about love, seeing each other and treating each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. For that's what we are in faith. And it's the chief, uh, the chief motivation, the, the, the chief commandment that Christ even gave us. The next one on, in the list is this idea of compassion. So it means uh, affect, being affectionately sensitive and caring. I think my wife's going to be quoting that back to me throughout this the service about saying, you know, Chris, you did, you know, you need a little more compassion. You need to be affectionately sensitive and caring. And this is what Peter is encouraging everyone, a behavior that everyone should have, that that should be the mark of a Christian. And then finally, not last, uh, last but not least, is this notion of humility, the opposite of pride. And uh, C.S. Lewis said it great, and I quote it almost every time I, I, I talk about humility, is that it's, humility is not thinking less of yourself, as then you think too highly of you think you need to think worse of yourself. It's not that. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's cultivating a life where you give more space and more room to the needs of other people than you do about what's going on inside or just living in your own world. And part of that means that we, as Christians, we should live in such a way that we're willing to encourage one another and bless one another Celebrate our, uh, rejoice other people, rejoice with other people's successes. Now, as I read through this list, maybe like you, I mean, I'm a big checklist guy. And so sometimes when there's a list in the Bible, I see it as a checklist and I can go down and, well, I'll admit there's areas of my life where I need work on this list. If Chris Drennan's having a really good day, he doesn't do too bad. Like I'd say, I'm at least 65, 70% on lots of this stuff. And D's get degrees, so that's, that's great. I think that's like passing mark, right? But Peter isn't talking about just these on a good day or when you're at your best. The reality is, is this list doesn't exist within a vacuum. Real life happens. This is a context of people who are suffering and experiencing hardship, and yet Peter is still encouraging them that these are the essential ingredients. These are the essential behaviors. I couldn't help but feel the check when I was experiencing a little bit of self-righteousness during the preparation of this service and going through this checklist, um, going, hey, I'm not doing too bad. And, and the Lord kind of stirred me and been like, what do you see on social media? And I was like, whoa, yeah. What if we as Christians use this list in terms of the way that we engage with other people when we're somewhat removed from them. And I thought, man, think through this. Harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, humility. That would transform the social media world if Christians and people just put these behaviors forward first. And if you think you're getting a handle on these, thinking like you're up for the task, hold on. Peter goes on in verse 9, the first chunk of it. Here's what he says. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Reality check. Evil's coming at you or you're experiencing insult. Now, how are you doing? Right? These are the very things that cause hurt. These are the very things that cause suffering in our lives. And yet we're still encouraged to have these appropriate behaviors or God-honoring behaviors. But it's not easy when life hits. 
I think of um, when I'm, you know, I can be having the best day ever, and then it's usually people's words that affect me where I'll read into some slight or somebody will say something that's just a little bit off and I'll get a little bit indignant or my pride will be hurt and all of a sudden it just rises up, right? Harmony's not on my mind. Love's not on my mind. Sympathy's not on my mind. Compassion and humility are far from me. It's almost as if um, Lucy Ray, so my eight-year-old, she's like all of 50 pounds soaking wet. If you can imagine her holding the leash, a dog leash, and on the other end of this dog leash is like a 300-pound English Mastiff, okay? The biggest breed of dog in the world. Huge, 300 pounds for 50 pounds. And they're walking down the street, and a rabbit runs out. What do you think is going to happen? Who's going to win that one? Is Lucy going to hold? Definitely not, right? She is going to be dragged behind that dog. And that's how it feels sometimes. That when we're insulted or we're hurt, that all of a sudden it seems like the last thing on our mind is to want to respond well. It's like holding back like the floodgates of hell to just, you know, try and get a rain on our tongue or get a rain on the situation. It goes against human nature to not retaliate or seek revenge. We all want to get back at someone who hurts us. But the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, the posture of Jesus, and Peter's perspective here is different. We are not to do that. We're to take it. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this. Um, but, but these things can also get us in trouble. For instance, this is only half of the verse. And if we only subscribe to this half of the verse before we move on, we actually, it creates a tension in our lives that I don't think is very healthy. For instance, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. If we stop there, we end up developing a, um, a posture of just taking it. And we think that as Christians, we're called to just simply take it. And we take it, and we take it. The insults, the comments, the social media threads, we take it and we take it and take it. And the whole time we're just aiming to hold back the floodgates of our wrath because we know that's not what we're supposed to do and we're just taking it and taking it. But how many of you know it comes to a point where you can't take it anymore? And a word will be out or you'll write something in social media or you'll say something or just the, your opinion of a person will forever be tarnished because of your anger towards them. And you realize I've lost this. I can't take it anymore. It seems as though Evil sets the directive, and we just simply have to take it. But that isn't Peter's perspective. You as a Christian are not meant to just take it. Evil is not to set the directive or have the upper hand in your life. Peter goes on, the same verse. He says, on the contrary. On contrary, says Peter. He says, repay, get this, repay evil with blessing. Because the, to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And we see that there's this interesting shift that's taking place. That uh, there's a shift from simply behavior in terms of act a certain way, be this way. There's a shift towards belief. You're called to something. God has called you to live differently. Not just in your behavior, but in your belief. 
And there's this notion that as we do this, there's a blessing that we inherit. And this makes it, this makes it difficult, right? This notion of trying to bless those. And, I mean, Peter's saying something that is challenging. But you know what? He didn't get the idea. It's not his idea. It's his perspective, but it's not his idea. It's sounding familiar. And if we look to Matthew 5, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 to 48, hear how what Peter has said, how it echoes from this very passage or this very teaching from Jesus. Here we go, 43. Jesus says, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Bible doesn't say that in the Old Testament. It's just, you've heard it said, that that's what people were saying, that, you know, you love your neighbor, but you hate, stand against your enemies, right? But Jesus, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be, um, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than any of the others? Do not even pagans do that? 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. Praying for those who persecute you and returning blessing to evil and insult um, and blessing to evil and insult shows who you are. It shows that we are children of God. We don't live. We're not called to live as the world lives. We're called to live differently. We live in such a way to show the world who he is. It's not about us. And I can't help but feel that this resonates that in Peter's day and age, the very reason that they're experiencing suffering is because they're living differently. They're living righteously. They're not participating in pagan sacrifices and just in, in an anything-goes culture. But they're being loving, sensitive, kind, humble. And this is chafing against the culture. You see, if we just stop at the first half of that verse, we just take it. We do not remain, we, we're not supposed to just remain idle or unmoved or unresponsive. Rather, we're actually supposed to engage and seek the blessing of others, even our enemies. Many of you probably had joined us for our Start With Blessing series, which is fantastic, um, about, you know, talking to, your, uh, talking to God about your neighbor before you talk to your neighbor about God, this idea of praying for our neighbors and in engaging, blessing them in that way. And I think... Um, I'm starting to see that a lot more in other texts, and it shows up so clear in 1 Peter here as well, this notion of praying for others. You see, evil does not set the directive in our lives, but God does. And he wants us to be a part of his work. And we do that through prayer. That's our starting point. That's one of the blessings that Peter is talking about. It's the instruction that Jesus gave. That we don't just take it. And so I find that for my own life, this is helpful. Because sometimes I get, um, I just get tired of taking it. And I feel like it always seems like, like evil has the upper hand. Or that I'm always just having to respond to crisis. Or to the works of darkness. Or, or something dumb that somebody has said. 
And yet in that moment, God doesn't want me to give up and question him. Rather, he wants me to push in in prayer, to be about what he's about. And it's amazing that as we engage in prayer, the way that God changes our hearts. Don't you know who you are? In a couple of these passages, it's referred to that we're God's children. That he delights in answering our prayers. He wants to stir us up. God is inviting us to step out in prayer. The good news is God pours his blessing into us so that we can pour his blessing onto others. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from him. So even when the storehouse of Chris Drennan is long exhausted, I can turn my faith, I can turn my attention towards God in prayer and receive what I need to bless others. Verse 10, uh, Peter, uh, I feel like uh, as we move on to verse 10, he's actually sharing something I think is like a rich part of his devotional life. He, he, he quotes a passage from a psalm here. Uh, it's found in Psalm 34, 12 and 16, and it's very pertinent to where he's going um, and the argument that he's making and the encouragement he's wanting to offer. So let's, let's jump in. He says, For whoever would love life and see good days. So in my mind, I think he's defining what we would like to interpret as blessing, right? That we want to receive a blessing from God and we want blessings for other people. Here, this is what the psalm's saying. He's saying, whoever would love life and see good days. Those are great, great things to want. The blessing. Think about this, that these words are coming to people who are suffering and experiencing hardship. They're experiencing the opposite of this. And so Paul leads with this psalm. He gives them some instruction. It goes on, it says, Well, then you must keep your tongue from evil, easily said, difficultly done, and keep your lips from deceitful speech. Verse 11, They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. You see that? He's not saying you're just supposed to take it. He says that you're actually supposed to turn from evil, but engage in good. And that you're, you're not just supposed to try and seek peace for your own life, but that you seek peace and pursue peace in all relationships, in all manners of your life. To be a peace advocate, an activist. And it's great because um, this wasn't his idea. Jesus said it best. Um, oh, I'll get to that. Uh, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this is the belief. We have the, be- the behavior. This is the belief it hangs on. Isn't it interesting that it's talking about prayer, about how God hears the prayers of the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil? This is a, 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 an absolute truth that Peter is hanging all of behavior on, being rooted in this. This statement, verse 12, is an amen as well as an oh my. God sees you and hears your prayers, but also there's this notion that judgment is coming on those who do evil. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. This is an absolute truth that both the psalmist and Peter are standing on. God sees and acts, though his timing is his own. 
This focuses on the reality of the all-knowing nature and the just judgment of God. It anchors our behavior, belief, and our understanding of the blessing of blessings in this reality. That's part one. So by way of summary, friends, um, we see the, the negotiation between belief, our behavior leading into belief and tying in with blessings, but we also see an encouragement, a strong encouragement towards prayer with just a dash of judgment. And we'll come back to that in a bit. But one of the greatest expressions of our belief as Christians is expressed in prayer. And as we pray, we are participating in the currency of heaven where God works in and through us to achieve his aims. We should be so excited to pray because we're his children and because God hears our prayers, especially when we're facing opposition and suffering. It shouldn't turn us to questions and doubt. It should cause us to lean in in prayer. At least that's Peter's perspective and the perspective of Jesus. Part two. Uh, Part two sort of starts here with verse 13, and Peter leads with a question here. He says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And there's a logic to this, right? Who would wish to harm you if you're eager to do good? Um, Generally speaking, you know, if you show respect, you'll receive respect. If you're kind to someone else, they'll be kind to you, right? I mean, isn't that, that's what I tell my kids all the time, right? If you be nice to them, they'll be nice to you. In an ideal world, maybe, right? Peter isn't naive here. It's not a naive perspective. In a perfect world, sure, right behavior always produces right action, but in this case, not so. Look in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So even if you're doing all that you should be and you suffer, you're blessed. And he quotes, he says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. Now, again, this sounds familiar and Peter is drawing from the teachings of Jesus. We look in Matthew 5, verses 9 on to 11. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes. And get this. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are, those, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Get this. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The notes in my Life Application Bible said it really good, so I'm just going to quote it. It says, Each beatitude tells us how to be blessed. Blessed means more than happiness. It implies the fortunate and enviable state of those who are in God's kingdom. The beatitudes don't promise laughter, pleasure, or earthly prosperity. To Jesus, blessed means to experience the hope and joy independent of outward circumstances. It goes on to say, to find hope and joy, the deepest form of happiness, follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Jesus is the all the reward that we need. So we're blessed even when we suffer and we don't have to be afraid. 
It seems here there's a redefining of blessing. The, the world would define blessing as, you know, having all the money, having the smarts, having the health, having the good looks, and having fame. But you ever notice that even people with all of those are sometimes incredibly unhappy people? Yet in the midst of this suffering, how do we attain blessing? And here Peter says it. He refers to in verse 15, he says, but revere But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In the midst of your suffering, revere Christ as Lord. Meaning that um, we need to honor Christ in our hearts. But again, here, I feel like there's a bit of a trap here for Christians. That if we think that it's just all about that when we encounter suffering and and, and persecution, that we draw inward and we, we revere Christ, I think that's good. But if we stop there, I think we're in trouble. Because get this, Peter in his next breath says this, part of verse 15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You see, our faith isn't meant to be something that is just personal and kept to ourselves, but it's meant, it's meant to be shared. It's always been that way. We're We're here as the products of having received the gospel because people didn't keep quiet. Their lives were transformed the first century that the Spirit of God comes into their world. They submit and they believe in Jesus and their lives are transformed and they talk about it. They share it. They don't just keep this good news to themselves, but they freely talk about it to everyone who would ask. And in this, you begin to see the reason as to why People are being persecuted for their faith in Peter's day because it's chafing against the culture. There's a conflict of values. And Christians aren't meant to just let it go and to take it, but we're meant to have a response. And here we see Peter is saying the message of the gospel is important. Share it. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And he gives us some pointers on how to do this. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Did you know, catch catch that? Your behavior in Christ. You're not acting on your own behalf, but you're representing Christ. And the thought is here that even if they slander you and falsely accuse you, that the longevity of your commitment to Christ and your living faithful will put them to shame because their argument would have no weight. It would fall short. And the hope is that we would be a witness. That maybe maybe as we continue to bless our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, maybe they never turn. Maybe we never have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But you know what? Other people are watching. And there's always that opportunity that as they see you remain faithful to the Lord and bless those even though when everybody else in the world would simply curse or write off the relationship, you're sticking to it because it's the call of God on your life. Wow. You'll have no shortage of opportunity to share Christ's goodness with others. At the close of this second part, In verse 17, we find Peter saying, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is a scary verse because it opens us up to the reality that maybe God might be okay with us suffering. 
that in fact, maybe sometimes it's God's will that we encounter suffering. Uh, A quote I found as I was looking into this, it was helpful for understanding. It says, Without hesitation, Scripture is replete with examples where authors attribute the cause of one's suffering to the Lord. Yet, notice what they never do. They never once assign wickedness to the Lord. You see, it's this notion of, in Romans 8.28, that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so I'd say the summary part of part two here is this, that we need to give priority to the message of the gospel, to actual proclamation for the hope that we have. Continue to do good. Continue to seek peace. But also there's an urgency in Peter, Peter's message here that we need to be armed with a readiness to actually share where our hope comes from. And this is a challenge to me. I, I will work till the sun goes down to labor on somebody else's behalf to do a good thing for them. And I choke up when there's all of a sudden a moment to tell them about God or to tell them about what's going on in my life or the hope that I have. And Peter is wanting to encourage his readers and God is wanting to encourage us today to give priority to the message. Amidst our suffering, there is something Someone, I should say, greater at work. Our urgency should not be to escape suffering, but to share the gospel. While we are praying and responding in blessing to those in opposition to us, are we also proclaiming and testifying to the truth of the gospel? Giving a heartfelt explanation for the hope that we have. On this, we move into the last part, and I'll go, I'll go quickly through this. Um, we'll kind of look at it more as a, a large chunk, but... Um, it's a tough statement that Peter leaves off on there, this idea of it being God's will that we should suffer. And as if to sort of silence all argument or bring perspective and frame that well, here's what he says in verse 18, and this is a gem. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Isn't that a beautiful portrayal of what the gospel is? That Christ, the righteous one, suffered on behalf of the unrighteous. That's you and me. That Christ was willing to do that. The one who deserved never to experience suffering. Yet he took it. And it's as though um, God did not spare his own son from suffering Yet through Jesus' unjust suffering, punishment, and death, God brings about salvation for us all. How much more so, this is meant to encourage us, that as Christ is our example, that we too in the midst of our suffering can have confidence to know God is working in the midst of this. That nothing can separate us from God. As we move on with the end of verse 18 and into the next few verses, things get a little bit dicey, I'm going to admit. As I was doing research and looking into this, I was like, oh man, why did I get this text? I don't even know where to go with this. And so I began to do some some digging, and I'm really glad that there's others that have gone before. Um, Martin Luther, who who was no stranger to expressing what he felt like the Bible was saying and his interpretation of it, In these verses that follow, 
He goes, it's just not clear. There's not enough there. It's foggy. I don't understand. Uh, I looked into uh, John Piper also. I looked into some of the stuff on the way that he treats these next verses, and he would agree. He'd say, it's just not clear. Peter doesn't go on to give us enough to totally understand it. However, the intent isn't missed. The intent is clear. And I think the important stuff, that's what we're supposed to focus on. So here we go. Here it is. So, um, so he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You can see how it's a bit of a tricky verse. But I'll list out a few like where people have kind of gone, gotten into the weeds, so as to speak. Well, some would see this as that Christ is offering maybe a second opportunity at salvation for those that are in hell. And yet we realize other scripture contradicts this, and even Peter wouldn't subscribe to this elsewhere, and so that view has to be rejected. Others say that these spirits are actually fallen angels, and that Christ went to Hades to proclaim his victory and the final condemnation to the fallen angels in prison there since Noah's day. Traditionally, the interpretation that's been given to these passages is that uh, in between Christ's death and resurrection, he announced salvation to God's faithful followers who'd been waiting for their salvation during the whole Old Testament era. They've been waiting for Christ. They've been getting stored up. The faithful with God, the obedient to God, have been getting stored up, waiting for their salvation that those be found in Christ. And Christ comes back and proclaims it there. I think the helpful notion for us in this passage, so we stay out of the weeds, is that it's this idea of Christ's spirit being in Noah, preaching to the unbelievers of his day. And they didn't believe Noah, and so their spirits are imprisoned in hell now. And it makes sense, because in 1 Peter um, 1.11, Peter refers to, he's quoting, uh, he's talking about Old Testament prophets, and he refers to the spirit in which they prophesied was being Christ. And elsewhere in Peter, he refers to Noah as being a herald of righteousness. And so we can get the sense that it's Christ's spirit in Noah proclaiming it to the believers of the day. What's, what's helpful about all this, and I think where Peter was going, is that just as Christ was preached through Noah, who was a persecuted minority of his day, and God saved Noah, which is a similar situation in Peter's time. The Christians are being persecuted and they're a minority. And so this story actually brings them great encouragement and great hope. And we can look at that. There's three themes, and I, I want to close on this, and, and we'll close in prayer shortly here. But these three ideas with this portion of Scripture to help us um, to help us um, understand it clearly. There's a theme, it's clear that there's a theme of judgment in these last scripture, which, remember we got at in that passage from the psalm, there was a, a notion of judgment there. Yet despite the judgment narrative of Noah's day, we see here that God is patient 
and that God makes a way of salvation. He offers salvation to the obedient via the ark. Even though there were only a few, there was only eight, and yet God saved those eight. So too in Peter's day, Christians are a minority and persecuted minority at that who are suffering. Peter is, I think, wanting to encourage them to say that in Noah's day, there was only a righteous few and God acted to save. So too in our day, while Christians are being fed to the lines, being persecuted, God is not, God is active to save. He's not standing by. I think there's encouragement for us too today that God hasn't changed. His love is sure. And he desires to save. The second one here is that there's a symbolism of baptism. Notice how that water was a means of judgment in Noah's day. Jesus also said that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. It was poured out on both in Noah's day. However, the same event, the act of judgment was experienced very differently. Where unbelievers were ushered to death, judgment, the righteous were saved by an ark, even though they both encountered the same event. You see, it says there that God was patient. It grieved God's heart to destroy the earth. Elsewhere in 2 Peter, it says that God desires that none should perish, that all should come to faith in Christ. God reaches out to save. And he does this via the resurrection of Jesus. That it's not baptism that saves us, it's not the event, but it's our faith in Jesus, a clear conscience. And we have the same opportunity that in Noah's day and in Peter's day to give the expression of our belief in faith in what God has done through Jesus. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath. And the last one and the most important point here is the triumph of Jesus. The central truth of these verses is that there is no limit to Christ's victory and salvation. He has triumphed over his enemies. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And all things, angels, authorities, powers, everything's in submission to him. And this, my friends, is the conviction of truth to the believer that stands no matter the difficulties you're facing. As it was true in the days of Noah, as they looked to God for salvation, and in the days of Peter where they put their trust in God, so too for us to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus to save. So in closing, with that question, how are we to live above suffering? Well, in Peter's perspective, it's that we give ourselves fully to being about Jesus' triumph and his victory. That as we pray fervently, as we bless others, we also proclaim the truth of salvation through only Jesus Christ. To a culture and to a people who are in desperate need of that message. As in the days of Noah, the days of Peter, and ours today. Would you close with me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your victory over death, over sin. 
We thank you that before God the Father, you make us righteous. Having nothing of our own to bring, you give us what we need. So Jesus, I ask that you would strengthen our knees for prayer. You'd strengthen our hands for blessing and bringing peace. And Lord, that you would strengthen our mouths as we proclaim and freely give testimony to the hope that you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. God bless you.